I added one more podcast to the giant podcast bin. Now you have plucked that podcast out and started listening. I took my microphone and found some human folk. Then I recorded all the noises while we spoke. My name is Adam Buxton. I'm a man. I want you to enjoy this. That's the plan. Hey, how are you doing, podcats? It's Adam Buxton here. I'm reporting to you from a field in Norfolk, UK. It is coming up to the end of April 2022. Beautiful day today. It's been lovely all week, actually. I hope you've been able to enjoy some of the super fresh spring weather. Anyway, look, thanks for joining me and Rosie for another podcast. Rosie's very well, thanks for asking. She's uh, up ahead, she keeps looking around when I say her name. It's okay, you go ahead. I'm going to tell the podcats a little bit about podcast episode number 174, which features a rambling conversation with British comedian and writer Alex Horn. Horn facts! Got some personal facts at the top here. I mean, these are public personal facts, but you might like to know. Alex is currently aged 43. He is married to the journalist Rachel Horn, currently the news presenter on Chris Evans's radio show. They live in London and they have three human children and one dog child, Lockie. After leaving college, Alex made his first Edinburgh Fringe appearance with a solo comedy show aged 21 back in 2000 or, as it was then known, the year 2000. In the decade following the year 2000, Alex gifted us more great live shows, a couple of books, and Taskmaster, which began its life in 2009, more of which later. Uh, But it was 2010 that saw, or 2010 if you prefer, that saw the Edinburgh debut of Alex with the Horn section, Five talented musicians, Joe Auckland, Mark Brown, Will Collier, Ben Reynolds and Ed Sheldrake, who replaced Joe Stilgo, who appear on stage with their instruments, with Alex, and help him to create a unique style of musical comedy featuring games played with celebrity guests, the occasional parody and many wonderful original comedy songs. Some are straightforwardly very funny. Others like one of my favourites, Manifesto, are just sort of amusingly uplifting. Wear pyjamas all day long, paint your favourite flower, drink a glass of wine when you are standing in the shower. It's a manifesto, this is how to be. Have a little resto, call it Z-Not-Z. It's a manifesto. Is how to be. Try to do your best, so keep drinking lots of tea. That's Manifesto by the Horn Section. I've put a link in the description of the podcast to the Bandcamp page where you can buy 
that and many of their other songs and albums. In addition to their live shows, the Horn Section have made multiple appearances on TV programs like 8 Out of 10 Cats Does Countdown, The Last Leg, various Peter Crouch vehicles, and in 2018, a two-hour live special at the London Palladium for the Dave TV channel. There have also been three series of half-hour horn section shows on BBC Radio 4. And best of all, in my opinion, there have been seven series of the horn section podcast, each featuring a celebrity guest. I was on it, I was one of the first people on it, I think, back in 2018. But it wasn't until the first lockdown in 2020 that I became mildly obsessed. Alex recently told me that with any luck... We can expect new episodes of the Horn Section podcast later this year, and there are even plans afoot to make a Horn Section TV series. You heard it here first, possibly. My podcast conversation with Alex was conducted via Zoom towards the end of September last year, 2021. We talked about the ups and downs of getting older, being annoying, making music, dealing with other people's success, and the success of Taskmaster, which Alex created as a live show at the Edinburgh Fringe in 2009 and which made the transition to TV in 2014. We also talked about a trip to New York that I went on with Alex and his friend, the comedian Tim Key, in January 2020. Now, I also recorded a conversation with Tim a few months after the one I recorded with Alex back in January of this year, 2022, And I thought it would be good to upload that fairly quickly after this one with Alex as a kind of companion piece, as Tim and Alex are good friends in real life. But back to my conversation with Alex, I'm going to give you a warning because towards the end of the chat, there is a story about Alex's dog, Lockie, and uh, that features dog plop chat, which is, I would say, graphic. And I suppose it was my fault. I did encourage Alex to tell the story after I'd heard him telling a version of it on the Horn Section podcast. But it's, it is disgusting and it could ruin your day if you're squeamish about that kind of thing. So if you're worried at the first mention of Alex's dog, skip forward about seven minutes and you should be fine. I'll be back at the end. But right now, with Alex Horn, here we go. <laughs> Alex Horn. Alex Horn has entered the waiting room. Admit. There he is. Oh. <laughs> wow, look at you. Are you in your toilet? No, I'm not. I'm in a grown-up room. Oh. I don't really have an office, and the internet's not very good in the kitchen. Why don't you have an office? You're a successful guy. Thank you, Adam. Are we, have we started? 
Yeah, this is a soft start. It was quite a soft start until you said you're a successful guy, and that really threw me. <laughs> That's not something I would say to you socially. I wouldn't say that to anyone, I don't think. You're a successful guy. <laughs> I experimented with an office. Well, we had a sort of family office, but the kids had taken over it. And I didn't really like it. I prefer working in a, on just on a sofa. But I, I sat on my sofa for two days last week. And then I couldn't move on day three. I had an awful back problem. Yes, you've got to be careful with that. I've done the same thing when I was trying to write my book. I thought, I'm not just going to sit at my desk the whole time. I'm going to take myself into a different environment and see if that is intellectually stimulating. So I went and sat on the sofa in the room of the flat that my dad occupied when he was living with us, surrounded by all his books and bits and pieces, and sat there tapping away for a couple of hours. And then, as you say, realized that I was almost paralyzed because I was in such pain <laughs> yep. from the position I was in with my laptop on my lap. It's no good. You need to be at a desk in a very expensive editor's chair, mm. staring at the monitor at the right height so that you're looking straight ahead of you. I mean, I agree with all this, but I can't do it, I don't think. No. I bought a um, stand-up attachment to a table so it's, it's just a like a tray with legs that you can put your laptop on whatever height you want yeah so i thought i'd stand and write for a bit because i heard that Mackenzie crook stands and writes <laughs> so he's writing a script so he talks it out as if he's acting it and then writes it all down and it sounded so easy and i did that and i just wanted to sit down so i sat down and then i hurt my back and then i went to nero's as a change of environment because i like stimulation so i went to cafe nero but i couldn't walk from the car to the nero because of my back so i then went home and oh. that was the end of the day has that been a persistent problem for you, back pain? No, this is new. This is uh, 43's problem. I turned 43 two weeks ago. It was the day after I turned 43. <laughs> Immediately. <laughs> this will be what this year is. It is a bit shit, accumulating age. <laughs> I don't really like getting older. No. I'm trying to think of the good things about it. What do you think the good things might be? You know what? I think I'm all right with getting older, actually. Do you want to know what I got for my birthday this year, Adam? Yes, please. I got a skateboard and a skateboard lesson. The first of my life with a man called Lee, who was about five foot two. And he had to catch me several times in an hour. And I really loved it. Is that good for someone who's developing back pain, though? I don't know. Let's not worry about the two things. Okay. But um, I definitely thought over the summer, well, I am getting older. So if I want to learn skateboarding, it's probably now or never. So maybe the advantage of getting older is that you realise... A little bit that you are mortal and so you do get on with things a bit more. You don't waste as much time. Is that, I mean, it might be a bit optimistic, but I think I'm quite an optimistic person. So I, I think that's my frame of mind at the moment. Yeah, I think you're right that you definitely do feel, okay, time is getting shorter. I really shouldn't piss about to quite the same extent that I used to in the olden days. Or you piss about more, as in you do the right sort of pissing about. Right. Productive pissing about. Or pissing about that you really like. That was great pissing about. Yes. That kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, what I don't want to do, but what I still do and what I imagine, I hope you do, is look at my phone too much. And, I, and I'm really trying to stop. That's the worst sort of pissing about. What are you looking at? <sighs> my problem is I'm looking at Twitter because I do stuff on Twitter. So it's self-fulfilling. So I ask people things on it and I talk about uh, it's sort of self-marketing, you know, it's stuff with Taskmaster book yeah. stuff. So I need to look at it, but then something else catches my eye on it and I'm down, I'm, I'm gone. You need to look at it. Now, this is interesting because this is something I've wrestled with a great deal having come off social media. Who says you need to look at it? Why do you need to look at it? What practical value does it actually serve? Or are you just mm. caught up in this whole mirage, an ambitious <laughs> mirage matrix? 
That it might be, but I unfortunately I've set a treasure hunt with a book that came out last week, <laughs> and I have to answer questions on it. I've set clues and I've hidden clues in Twitter, which I I sent tweets years ago. Well, I can't give too much away here, but there's old tweets there that people need to discover. And I've promised I will send a tweet every time Cheshire United win by two goals with a with a sort of extra clue to the treasure hunt. So Twitter is a useful place where I can talk to anyone I want or anyone can talk to me. And I've always tried to be open and reply to people. Yeah. And I feel like I would be letting people down if I suddenly said, you know, the grand statement of I'm leaving Twitter is a bold one. And even if I just stopped doing it, I would feel too guilty. So I, I have to, I don't have to look at it, but I have to be on it. Yes. It's my own fault. I've told people I'm going to be there. So it's like saying I'll be at the cafe at 10 o'clock. I've said I'll be at Twitter. At, maybe, maybe that's what I should do. Maybe I should say I'll be there at 10 o'clock for half an hour every, every other day. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Like a little AMA at Mm, certain points. I think that's fair enough. I don't like just the idea that you're constantly available and that you do have that pressure to reply to people. Like, how do you deal with obnoxious people? You just ignore them, right? Yes, I was talking to Greg Davis about this. Do you know Greg Davis? Yeah. Tall man. The giant man of Taskmaster. Literally last night we had this discussion that he was very nice to me. I was on Saturday Kitchen at the weekend, and I don't always enjoy these sorts of programs, but they they can be really fun. They're good for promoting your shows. You have to do them. Uh, you don't get paid. You do get food, and you get well looked after. So for those who haven't seen Saturday Kitchen, what channel is that on? I think this one's on BBC One. Oh, yeah. So it's good for telling people about your things, and the host is lovely, and the crew are lovely, the production team's lovely. But, you know, it's live telly, and you're there to sell your wares, and eat food, and it's your Saturday morning. Anyway, this one went quite well, Adam. You know, you know. sometimes you're fairly pleased with how you've done. I said some things, occasionally it was all right. And Greg said, you were funny that morning. But I had two messages on Twitter. One said, whose idea was it to invite the awful, annoying, unfunny Alex Horn? He's ruined my weekend. <laughs> <laughs> and there was a reply to that saying, yeah, he's awful, isn't he? And that was it. There was the only two negative ones. But that did affect me. And it's stupid. I mean, not much, but there's definitely a surface, like a sort of, like being stung by a stinging nettle or something, just for 10 minutes. But even after that 10 minutes, it kept coming back in my head. And Greg says he feels the same. Well, you know, any little bit of criticism, it does go in somewhere. We're not as thick-skinned as we should be, probably. So I deal with it by uh, telling you on a podcast about it. They do lodge their... And, well, I suppose the obvious thing is that they're tweaking insecurities that everyone has about themselves, right? Hmm. And there's always a little voice, unless you are a total psychopath. I'm not far off being a psychopath, by the way. Are you? And occasionally a sociopath. So I I am generally pretty positive and pleased with myself. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Well, you know, I'm not racked with self-doubt or I don't tend to worry about things too much. And my problem with this guy was that he was quite logical. He just found me annoying. And that's absolutely fair enough. Mm Mm-hmm. Because everyone finds people annoying. But it's because he, he atted me, so I, those messages come up. I don't go looking. I don't understand why people do that, why they mark it for your attention. I suppose because they just feel like, oh, you have to know that you're annoying. It's not good <laughs> enough. It upsets them, the idea that you're wandering around being pleased with yourself. They're like, this cannot stand. Yes. He has to be told. He's very annoying. Everyone keeps patting him on the back and he just seems to go from strength to strength. I have to put a stop to it. Yes. And he did. He did temporarily. And I think I am annoying. I do think that sometimes because 
well, things are going fine at the moment. Things are going well. So that is annoying when things go well for people. Yeah. <laughs> it's much more fun when things go really badly and things get cancelled and badly reviewed. <laughs> Everyone likes that. Yeah. Yeah, it makes them feel good. That's right. When you see someone like, <laughs> even someone you like getting cancelled, you're sort of thinking, <laughs> you're thinking, <laughs> this is great. Glad it's not me. There's a part of you, no, like not a big part, I'm glad to say, but oh yeah, it's always nicer when it's happening to someone else. <laughs> yeah, I've not had a horrific thing happen to someone I know well. But yeah, dealing with a close friend's success is a challenge. It is, isn't it? Well, I have this thing with uh, Louis Theroux and um, the dynamic is clear in my mind. Like he is on a level that is far in advance of anything that I'm ever going to be dealing with which I'm totally fine with because he's he's got a set of skills that I do not have. And uh, I'm delighted for his success. However, there are certainly moments when I'm irked and I do mention them and they do inform little silly comments I make, which in my mind are banter. But I wonder, sometimes I worry that other people are going to think I'm being serious and that I'm genuinely angry with him and that I genuinely <laughs> am pissed off with him, which I never am. Mm. Like... Sometimes I hear you making comments on the horn section and other podcasts about how I stole some of your bandmates from the horn section. Yes, yes. You're one of a couple of people who've done that. (laughs) Yeah. So to be clear, this is a couple of members of the horn section, Mark and Ed, that I invited over to Castle Buckles to jam with me for a couple of days. They were trying to help me come up with ideas for music. And I did text you beforehand to ask if that was okay didn't want to tread on your toes and you said yeah fine and gave me their details but thereafter you act as if you're a bit annoyed about it now is that because a part of you is a little bit annoyed about it and that informs the bants or is that entirely invented bants so i would hope that everyone especially you would understand that's entirely invented bants yeah although i haven't been invited to the castle myself that's the only tiny bit of it that's I would have liked to have gone to the castle first. <laughs> You're welcome any time. I wish we were doing this face to face. I really miss the olden days of actually sitting in front of people. And mm. But it is nice to um, see you. And luckily, our technology is working today. So that's good. Well, you know what? I sort of agree with that. I, I, I would have liked to have gone for a walk with you. But I'm not very good at sitting at a table with someone. Just If me and you were going for a coffee yeah. or a beer, I'm not very good at that. I would find it a bit awkward. So I, I think sometimes I'm better over Zoom. Okay. I'm more um, more relaxed and maybe more me sometimes. Um, but no, I'm very grateful when anyone takes the band on because I have a lingering guilt that I can't spend as much time as I want with the horn section because of other things. Yes. So any time that you or James Acaster or Tim Key picks them up and lets them have a play, I'm grateful. So I'm pleased that you babysat them, Adam. <laughs> I'm sure they'll appreciate being characterised as... <laughs> <laughs> sad lonely children well it's pretty clear what they are <laughs> they're geniuses is what they are was it mark brown who came up with the um manifesto song on the horn section podcast yeah he came up with the music and i think i did come up with the words on that one but i i quite often get far too much credit for most of the things in the band they they yeah, I'd probably come up with 5% of the stuff if you include all music. I mean, I, I come up with no music and a tiny f- bits of words. And I agree, they are geniuses. And, um, well, I still think all musicians are. Yeah. But they're pretty effortless. And also, we come up with a couple of albums a year, I suppose. And I don't understand why all bands don't do that. Or even a, an album a week. <laughs> 
because they make it seem really easy to come up with a song and a you know really catchy song just like yeah. that. And I was thinking, what band was I thinking of recently? You know, I'm, I haven't got a good example, but say the Fratellis. <laughs> <laughs> I think I can name two of their songs, but they should have done hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. Yeah. I don't know what the problem is there. (laughs) Maybe an answer might be that it's easier to write a funny song, but I don't think it is. I think it's hard to write a funny song. Much harder. I'm really struggling. I've got a record contract. Yes, I know about this. Yeah. (laughs) You've had it for some time, haven't you, Adam? I've had it for ages. And um, (laughs) every now and again, I, I get an email from the person at the label and i'm always expecting it to say you know what don't worry so much about the record contract um we've decided to give it to someone else who actually does music but that hasn't happened yet and they're still hoping that i'm going to come up with some music i have actually started on a few songs and um, working with mark and ed was the beginning of that process although our time together has not so far yielded any delicious ripe fruit we did come up with a song about wheelie bags. Mm. Fertile territory. I've tried to do something with wheelie bags before. Have you? Yeah. What was your angle? We we wrote a failed musical. It didn't get anywhere. It was based on um, Vice Versa, the old movie. Oh, yeah, the body swap movie. or Yeah, but our main character in that in the eight, late 1800s was going to be the guy who invented wheelie bags. So I think <laughs> we all want to know who invented wheelie bags. When did wheelie bags come into being was it in the 80s i think it was mid 20th century but our guy was the archetype of it he was because my guy. angle i was thinking a wheelie bag song would be funny because it's like they've been around for so long and who cares and you know people have ceased finding wheelie bags in any way novel or interesting so i thought ha ha i'll do a song about wheelie bags like very outdated observational song <laughs> And I would do it to like a kind of 60s garage band psychedelic backing, you know, a bit like 96 Tears, if you know that song. Mm -hmm. So that's what myself and Mark and Ed were working on. But in the end, it just ended up quite stodgy and no disrespect to their (laughs) musical genius. It was only a demo that we were putting together. But I worked on this thing for ages trying to think of funny things to say about wheelie bags and then the other day i was doing some book shows live shows at which i have been singing a little bit of the music that that might end up on some kind of ep and one of the songs i tried out was my wheelie bag song and i sang over the backing track millie vanilli style and um it didn't go down that well right and i said afterwards like what do you think of the wheelie bag song this was in Bristol. Very warm, positive Oh, crowds. lovely, yeah. yeah. You'll really find out if something doesn't work, if it doesn't work in Bristol. Exactly. Like, pretty much everything is going to work in Bristol. But Wheelie Bag did not work in Bristol. And I said, tell me honestly what you think. <laughs> and a couple of members of the audience just said, it's not as good. We really like you, they kept on saying. But it's not as good as your other stuff. And it's a bit boring. But you're going to stick at it, I hope. Because... <laughs> Because, I mean, we definitely have a rule that the funniest songs we've ever done have been pretty much written in 10 minutes. Yeah. And I guess that's maybe the same with all music, isn't it? When you really try to force something for a long time, it very rarely comes out well. But we keep the same ideas for years and years. We've tried to do a a song about punctuation for eight years, I think. Uh Punctuation saving the nation. And we were going to do physical versions of punctuation with the colons, with our fists. And it's just not funny. We've tried it every other year. And I don't know why we haven't got the message. It's not, there's nothing there. Everyone has stuff like, like I, I know a lot of comedians have 
things like that that they just keep hammering away at because you're so fond of them you just think there is something good about this why doesn't anyone get it yeah i was just saying maybe in every same in taskmaster as well we do come up with tasks every time we, we, let's try that one again and it's another waste of time means you're dragging things that matter but don't turn too fast or you'll flip up on your side everybody got to get a wheelie bag everybody got to get a wheelie bag you never need to feel a heavy thing anymore if you place some wheels between your bag and the floor but with your album, so is it? Is there some serious music or is it? Is it all comedy? Well, no, I don't think there is going to be serious music on it, even though I would love to do that. And I keep on, my fantasy is that a talented musician will get in touch and say, look, you know, like I know Leanne Le Havas, the musician. Mm-hmm. And although I've never said this to her directly because I'd be too embarrassed, my dream is that she would say, let's collaborate on a serious song. But why? She'd have to be mad. Why mm. would she do that? Like, it doesn't make any sense. Why would you? I can't sing very well. I've never <laughs> written a serious song. I don't, I couldn't write good lyrics for that kind of thing. But it is my dream because I love music so much. And the most moved and elated and uplifted I ever get is is listening to music. Well, the male voice, though, I think you do sing well. And I think the male voice, you can get away with it more. There, You know, there are so many people like Tom Waits or Bob Dylan, even, that they don't sing very well, but they're really good to listen to. Yeah, they've got character. Yeah, I don't sing well at all. And it's sort of the running joke of the band is I can't sing, but I'm the singer. <laughs> but Joe, the trumpeter, keeps telling me he likes my singing. So I think you do sing well. So I think there's, I'd hold out hope for Leanne and you. I would write a song. I know what I would write about. Like, I've already, I've started writing lyrics. And I suppose there's something silly about them. Like, my favourite kind of music is music that does have something funny about it. Like, I loved The Fall. And there's Mm -hmm. a lot of music by The Fall that is funny and odd. But it's not novelty music. It's not comedy music. I also like Ween, the band, and that is much more on the cusp of being novelty or or comedy music. There's something self-consciously nutty about some of it, and that's why I think some people find it irritating. But yes, something on the cusp, like, do you ever listen to Silver Jews, the band? No. They're really, really good. The guy is no longer with us, sadly, but he was really interesting and funny and a very serious tortured soul but also had a very funny sense of humor and a lot of that is in the silver jews music there's a song called people by silver jews that i would recommend to anyone who wants to explore and it's all in there so that's my i i feel as if maybe i could occupy that kind of space yeah so yeah so you could be serious topics but written with a sense of humor yeah something with a smile i suppose it would be too much of a stretch to be anything other than that Mm. like who do you love who do you what what music do you keep coming back to Oh, you've got to understand, Adam, that I've got awful taste in music. <laughs> I listen to the Eddie Stobart Songs for Truckers album. I, re- I really do. Yeah. Um, I had the best of Roy Orbison in my car for about four years. That's good, though. It's good, but it would just come on every time I turn the car on. Okay. And I was happy with that. So I guess Roy Orbison is my answer. Which uh, fav- favourite Roy Orbison song? Well, it's the worst one, Pretty Woman. <laughs> That's not the worst one, but it is the most <laughs> obvious one. 
<laughs> the big O. Um, I've got bad. T- I well, I listen to this is really. I think you might be disappointed in me, but I listen to um, Virgin Radio because my wife is a newsreader on it. Oh yeah, and it's sort of lazy. It's it's just on all the time. But also their playlist, which is very AOR works for me sure i like it in the background and i very rarely put an album on but i did buy a record player after our trip to new york yes um whatever 19 months ago 20 months ago where we had a record player in the little apartment we stayed in so i, I came home and i bought rattle and hum the u2 album which was one of the first albums i bought as a kid do you know the album it's a live one sure i know of it i don't have it yeah well i you know you two feel like they've become cold play in people's heads that you sort of laugh them off a bit yeah but I, I really liked them, and uh, that's a good vinyl album that I will come back to. But I also bought just a job lot of things from eBay, random 50s albums. And I don't know any of the people, but I really enjoy putting them on, just people I've not heard of. Because that's what we did in that place we stayed. We just grabbed albums and put them on. Can we talk about that trip? I don't know. Can we talk about it slightly mysteriously? Well, you tell me, you describe what you're comfortable describing. Well, I don't think I particularly want to talk about the purpose of the trip. But I don't mind talking about who went on the trip. But we can say that the purpose of the trip was a scheme that you and Tim Key were cooking up. Yes, yes. But probably that's enough in terms of the purpose of the trip. Okay. And we invited you along as our sort of mentor and, well, companion, but also the documenter. Yeah, I was kind of a host, Hmm. uh, camera person. It was a strange trip because it was... Two months before the pandemic hit, uh, it was heavy snow in New York. We were there for a short period of time with a friend of Tim's. It was in out, wasn't it? And also I had um, a medical problem. (laughs) I was going to say, like, how much are you comfortable saying about that? Because that was quite an amazing moment. Yes. Um, You know what? I don't think I am comfortable yet. Again, I don't mind talking around it. I've told so few people. (laughs) But occasionally I open up. I'm very bad at unpacking. When I get home from holidays or trips, I don't really fully unpack ever. So one of my zip pockets in my rucksack is still got some of the creams i had to use (laughs) okay like i will describe i will try and do a description that is not too explicit okay but basically we landed in new york we went to the airbnb which was out in what do they call that area i i don't know anything i just listened to roy orbison it was (laughs) it was a kind of legendary jazzy area up in the north of Manhattan in Sugar Hill. That is correct. Uh, Hamilton Heights area. Sugar Hill made famous by the Sugar Hill Gang, who did... What did the Sugar Hill Gang do? They did a rap song. Rapper's Delight. That's the one, the big one. The big one, which is kind of the Rosetta Stone of rap <laughs> in many ways. And we were staying in an Airbnb that was run by a guy who ran a kind of uh, bookstore that specialised in Afro-American literature. Yes. So the shelves in this little apartment were lined with all these incredible books. And there was also a record player there and a selection of really great jazz records yeah mainly from the 50s and 60s and every morning well we were there only um, three or four days or something yeah i think three mornings probably yeah but we would have breakfast tim key would and you would scramble up some eggs i think it was just him i was in so much pain i would sit awkwardly and eat it right so we have to so i'm going to do my best to 
talk round the medical complaint yes, to your satisfaction. It was soon after landing, wasn't it? It was soon after we got there. Yeah. So the first thing was that when we got to the apartment and we were shown around by this very chatty fellow that yeah. used to run this bookshop and he was telling us all about it. Can I say too chatty? Just too chatty. 5% <laughs> too chatty. Yeah. <laughs> but we were, we were kind of exchanging looks and I was filming everything. And then the first thing that happened was after he finally departed and we were like, wow, he was chatty. But it was funny, like he was a personality. Definitely. He was a character. And then I realized that I hadn't taped any of it. <laughs> I just taped the bit. Uh, it started recording when, when he left and I thought that I'd switched it off and that's when it switched on. That's the worst feeling. Yeah, it's a sad, sad moment. And then the other bad feeling I got was realizing that I'd left my quite expensive Zoom recorder that I use for podcasts on the plane. Yes, two bad feelings. <laughs> and so then I spent uh, an hour or two trying to get online and get in touch with the airline to say, oh, I've left this thing. Never got it back. No. You just sort of think like, I know the exact seat that I was in. I know where it was. Don't get it back. So that was a couple of bad feelings. Then you went off to use the lavatory. Correct. And came back into the room absolutely ashen-faced. <laughs> yeah, I think maybe I'd had the worst of the three feelings. <laughs> and you were just like, you just looked as if you'd seen a ghost, a really, really bad ghost. And um, you... <laughs> I turned to you for advice. You over Tim, I think. I thought... If either of you had been through this, it would have been you for some reason. Just because you're you're a little bit older. Yeah, than Tim. yeah, yeah. And I was very glad you were there. Although I did, I really had to um, draw on my friendship with Tim. We're very good friends, but we're not uh, huggy, mm -hmm. and we don't talk about. Uh, we we do talk about emotions, but not very often. So this suddenly, but we became quite physical. We had to. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, basically, you had. It was the first time that you'd had a certain type of bottom-based situation that happens to a lot of people at a certain point. Yes, I could not believe it. They strain a little bit too hard, and it does feel as if something important has become dislodged in the yes. bottom valley. It was unbelievable, and I thought my world had fallen out of me, I suppose. <laughs> a little part of it had. And luckily, the person we were staying with, his wife was a doctor... That's right, isn't it? I oh, think. yeah, that's right. So I had to take a picture of it. And I'd never seen that bit of me before or since. And I could, I was pretty surprised by what it looked like. <laughs> Have you still got that picture? I, I guess so. But I worry because my photos go on iCloud to my children. I th in fact, I think I got rid of it. I got rid of it. But I did have to go to the doctors, <laughs> an emergency doctors in Harlem, yeah. which was a pretty frightening doctors late at night with Tim. And we were dressed in suits the whole time. Yes. Tim and I, with black ties. It was like the Blues Brothers. <laughs> but the doctor refused to look at me, refused to look at that bit. He only looked at the photo. I took my trousers down. He said, it's okay, I only need to look at the photo. <laughs> and Tim was there again, looking away. And he prescribed me various things. I paid a lot of money. And then it went back in and everything was all right. Yeah, which is usually the way. Yeah, well, apparently, yeah. But I did change my lifestyle from that moment. I've stopped having sugar in my tea. And that seems... I've not had it since. Okay. Did you used to have very, very sugary tea? Yes. I used to have three or four sugars in my tea. And I did actually have sugar in the tea this morning. But I, I've given it up quite often. Yeah. I think we've described it enough. I think people have a yes, pretty yes. vivid idea of it. No, I think you're right. But I felt really bad for you because I know what that feeling is like. 
having had that specific thing happen to me and other things that do happen to you and the first time they happen you think okay well I'm dying yeah and it's really frightening and then someone explains no it's okay that's normal (laughs) that happens a lot and it's a huge relief so I was happy to be able to reassure you and be almost you know and be extremely confident that I was right that's the other thing I wasn't just saying oh you know you'll probably be fine I knew exactly what had happened to you and I knew that you were definitely going to be fine (laughs) yeah well there was a lot of emotions because it was frightening at first and I felt alone on the toilet Mm. and then I came out and told you guys and that was embarrassing to get the words out But after that, I felt quite liberated and it was a real icebreaker because we met a lot of people that we'd never met before in a very short space of time who were filming us and we had to tell them everything. And well, when I walked into the room, they all knew about the situation. And actually, most people had either been through it or wanted to know about it. How did they know I didn't tell them? Well, his wife did, the director's wife, (laughs) because I'd had to call on her expertise as well. So everyone knew and some of them had seen the photo. So it was quite useful. I didn't have to introduce myself to anyone. They knew I was the guy (laughs) with the issue. (laughs) But I was very nervous going to the toilet. The the most intriguing bit was the next time you go to the toilet. It's not the same in any way. But I know that when women have babies, the next time they go to the toilet is quite a big moment. So I I guess I can empathise in a tiny way to them. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. But it was a good bonding moment because we were all a little bit jet lagged. You know, you come off a plane and you do feel discombobulated anyway. Mm. And then we're standing in that little groovy, book lined, jazzy room in Sugar Hill. In suits. In suits. In the snow. Yes, in the snow. Well, the the snow hadn't started at that point, but a couple of days later, it was a blizzard. Mm. It looked amazing. But I've not, the things we've shot, I haven't looked at since. So that's in a vault. But we will no doubt talk about this in years to come. Yeah, I hope so. It was great fun and it was an interesting project, typical of uh, you and Tim, I would have thought. And I really do hope it sees the light of day at some point. I'm checking my account at the memory bank. The memory bank, the memory bank. We're thanking you for banking all your memories. I'd like to take out a happy memory thanks. The memory bank. The memory bank. Oh, sorry, but you're very overdrawn. I will repay with interest when I get back up on my happy feet. The memory bank. The memory bank. I'm very sorry, but we're closing your account. My what? Where am I? The memory bank. The memory bank. We're the nice bank. Would you like to bank with us? But yeah, I loved that trip. Uh, I loved those breakfasts of scrambled eggs and toasted bagels and listening to jazz on the record player. And the other thing that I remember is uh, the Buddy Hackett poems. Oh, yeah. Because in the, in the toilet of this Airbnb was a book, and it was called The Naked Mind of Buddy Hackett. Wow. Have you bought that since, or yeah. did you steal it? No, I, I thought about stealing it from the place, but I just thought that would be so low. Do you want to describe the cover that you're holding up to me? <laughs> you describe it. You're the guest. Well... There are two gentlemen in the picture. There's also what looks like a cormorant hanging off a hat stand in the background. So there's a gentleman wearing a suit and tie on a little fold-up picnic chair. It's Buddy Hackett. It's Buddy Hackett interviewing a naked Buddy Hackett. Am I correct? They're both Buddy Hackett, aren't they? They're both Buddy Hackett. Yeah. So this is the naked mind of Buddy Hackett. So lying on a psychiatrist's chaise long with a bowler hat on his genitals. Yeah. Arms folded, big smile. (laughs) 
And then there's a picture of a goat in the background with the word Joe underneath. <laughs> so there's a lot going on. Buddy Hackett, born in 1924, died in 2003, American actor and comedian, best remembered for his roles in The Music Man, where he played Marcellus Washburn. He also played Benji Benjamin in It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. Do your listeners, um, do your listeners follow through with your niche references? Because maybe they should with this one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think some of them do. This is a good copy that I bought off Abe Books. I'm not sponsored by Abe Books or anything. I'm just mentioning them because I've used them before and they seem like a good service for secondhand books. I paid £37.50. Um, that's quite a lot of money for a book. It is quite a lot of money for a book, but I wanted to own it because it reminds me of that trip and uh, it's such a happy memory. It's an amazing book. And also, it turns out that I got a signed copy. Oh, well, then it's not a lot of money for that Look at that. Signed to Donna and Bob from Buddy Hackett. Oh, even better. That's... I have to sign... I imagine you have to sign things. Yeah. And I always wonder where they end up and what people do with them. Yes. But the idea that they get passed on or bought for £37.50 is great. Absolutely. I think this is worth more than £37.50, though. No, I don't. (laughs) Because in the morning we would sit at breakfast and after we'd had our scrambled eggs and bagels, we would read little bits from The Naked Mind of Buddy Hackett to each other. (laughs) This is all true, yeah. And it's a strange book because, you know, Buddy Hackett was a comedian and yet the poems in here are mainly serious. It's like he's sort of being deep. And he's sharing his wisdom that he's accumulated with people in a poetic form. I'd love to hear one, Adam. Yeah, okay. Here's a random one. So this is what we would do at breakfast, really, is open at a random page and then you, me or Tim Key would read one out and then we'd rate them. Um, Toys. A lump of coal, a string and a nail were hiding under an old icebox. The little boy knew where they were. He tried to let enough days pass by so that he could forget about them. Then rediscovery could excite him as discovery had once on the warm kitchen floor when snow was on the streets. Yeah. (laughs) What rating would that have got? Because you see, that's, you know, it's a little poetic vignette. It's not actually a poem, that one. No, he just thought, I'll write that down. The Naked Mind of Buddy Hackett. And also, do you remember the back cover? Oh, that's... Yeah, so there is a photo of him with a very wonky mouth and about four teeth. And his eyes aren't quite right, are they? And his shirt (laughs) is open. I'm going to put in the description of the podcast, I'll put a clip of Buddy Hackett Mm. doing one of his poems. It's a sweet poem written for his parents' 50th wedding anniversary that he recited on um, on the Dick Cavett show. Do you think there's an equivalent of him in the English or British entertainment scene? Not now, but that kind of thing used to... Yeah, you used to get a lot more of those in the 70s and the 60s, right? Like um, Ken Dodd, who is my comedy hero. He produced lots of just genuinely serious songs. Yes. I mean, they, were, they weren't serious. They were about like, like happiness. But in his live shows, Tim and I went to see him three times live and there were 20-minute segments that were entirely serious and boring. <laughs> Where he was talking about just life and philosophy. Yeah, or just singing straight songs or doing ventriloquism but with no jokes. And then he would be really funny again for a bit. 
But he was quite happy just, yeah, to speak his mind for a bit and then go back to the really good one-liners. There you go. Perfect example. So that's an exact equivalent of, of someone like Buddy Hackett. True, actually. And I'm sure there's people in America doing the same as we are now and looking at a picture of Ken Dodd going, there he is. He's made the decision <laughs> to put that photo on his book. Can you believe this guy? And he walks around. He has like a duster. He has teeth. I don't know if they're real, the teeth, but they stick right out. And this guy's got crazy hair and a duster. He waves the duster. I've got my tickle stick in. Tickle stick. Well, in my children's office in its plastic sheath. I've not ever got it out because I want to keep it forever. But it was all very sweet. And we met him a few times and he was the loveliest guy. And I was quite affected by his death. Yeah. Um, I had to do a talking heads and I don't get moved often. But I found myself, oh my God, I might cry on camera. And it would have been fine. But um, yeah, I don't know why. But I th- he represented a sort of different generation, my grandparents' generation. And watch- I watched him with my parents and things like that. Uh, and he was a very innocent man, I think, apart from being guilty of tax fraud. Oh, yeah, that's right, yeah. Well, he was he was always innocent. He was always proved not guilty, but I think... His, his shows were half about that, even in the 2000s, half about how long the show was. <laughs> if the show wasn't about how long it was, it wouldn't have been long. And then some really good jokes. And he used to have his jokes written on his hands, jokes that he'd written on that day about topical news stuff. So he was, yeah, he was a really good... He was a productive man. Yeah. That's amazing that you were so into him. Like, what were you watching then with your folks? I guess it was him at the Palladium. Really old-fashioned cabaret show. Not cabaret shows, just variety shows. And that's what we do with the horn section. I'm sure it's directly from that. We really like having music and variety acts. And we did a show at the Palladium, and that felt really important. We had all our parents came and watched it, and there were lots of posters of him up on the walls. And it's probably my favourite thing I've done. You know, that, that would be the thing that I say was the best thing I've done. That was televised, right? It was televised. It was two hours long, which is really stupid. And I remember it going out. I was on a sleeper train to the Isles of Scilly. We're down to Cornwall. And we were turfed out at three in the morning because the train broke down and we're all put in taxis. But I was watching the response to the show come out, as you do. Mm-hmm. It went down well, but it turned out only 100,000 people watched it. <laughs> and we really thought, well, this is going to be the start of our TV career. But they, we were told pretty swiftly afterwards, no, that's it. Thank you for that particular project. Was that Sky? No, that was Dave. And I'm grateful that they gave us any opportunity to do it. But, um, yeah, we really thought, we were really proud of it. But they were, it shouldn't have been two hours long and it probably shouldn't have been at the Palladium. And we also put everything we did in it. So we were then bereft of material. I mean, they took a real punt. That's amazing that they gave you that amount of latitude with it. Yeah, it was an interesting project. And Dave are really good at putting things on and doing things. And if something works, they will carry on doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it worked creatively, but it didn't work financially in any way. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was great. I mean, you know, I'm a fan of you and the horn section. The horn section who became one of my obsessive crushes during lockdown. I think a lot of people... Yes, you were our biggest fan by miles. (laughs) That's not true. But God, I loved it. And it really cheered me up on a number of occasions. And it was... Yeah, I mean, lockdown was bleak for all sorts of reasons, for all sorts of Why do you think, because you did get in touch, and it meant a lot to us, you getting in touch to say that it meant something to you. Was it because you could imagine us mucking about, do you think, and making things during this difficult period? Yeah, I mean, I went back through and listened to all the episodes that I hadn't heard before. So stuff that was recorded before the lockdown as well. Right. Yeah, I like the kind of gang mentality. I think you're very funny on it. I love the songs. And there are, I'm constantly impressed by how good the songs are. So 
like musically interesting because that's the holy grail for me is you want something that's funny but also that you can listen to it more than once so it's not just totally boring and basic and quite often the bits of music on there are really intriguing and strange and complicated oh really ambitious yeah (laughs) especially from will and ben actually ben the drummer when we rehearse he will always say actually can we do something interesting here and mark and joe will go oh do we i don't think we have to (laughs) But he'll always push it and they'll always do it. And I think a lot of it is because their friends are musicians and they are very worried that the musicians listening will go, well, they're just phoning this in. They want to impress their musician friends in the same way as us comedians want to impress our comedian friends. Yes. You know, if you did an obvious joke, you'd feel like you've let yourself down. And if they do an obvious musical thing, they would feel the same. So they're trying to impress their friends, I think. Yes. I was also encouraged to have Robbie Williams on my podcast because... He was on the Horn Section podcast, and when you did the version of Angels at the end, you did a kind of reggae arrangement. I thought he did it just right. He didn't go all kind of ironic on it. Yeah, but that song was funny because we put that song out during lockdown. Not out, we just it was on the podcast and we put a video of it out. And we thought it would be huge because it's. I think he did it really well. The band really slaved over their version of it. Yeah. Just barely made a splash at all. It's very interesting. It's very hard to know how to obviously go viral or make any impression at all. It's true, isn't it? It's really weird, the stuff that does cross over. Because I've had that same thing. You, you know, you reach a point of visibility and you think, oh, well, I've got X number of people who connected with this thing I did. So now mm. I'll probably get a similar engagement with this other thing, which I think is really funny. And no, there's, there's absolutely nothing. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, this isn't a plea, but we're on a sort of tour at the moment with the horn section. I don't know when this is going out, Adam, but we had, like most people, postponed gigs, which we're now doing this autumn, which yeah. remember happened a year and a half ago. And I think people would presume, because I'm on telly quite often sometimes, uh, that the tour would sell really well. We're only in small, you know, 300-seaters, but there's plenty of tickets left. It really isn't the case that they're sold out. And you see other people doing these arenas and they're all sold out. Yeah. And I don't know, I don't really question it, but we are very culty, the horn section. We're very not mainstream, even though we did this BBC One programme with Peter Crouch and we're always on Countdown and that sort of thing. But the people who like us really like us, but lots of people just aren't interested <laughs> at all. And that's why I'd much prefer to be a few people who like us a lot than a lot of people who like us a little, I suppose. Yeah, you want to be like the velvet underground of comedy. Yes, but it'd be nice to fill the rooms because <laughs> there's six mouths to feed. Yeah, I did a show in London the other day at the Royal Festival Hall. Yes, Tim Key was there. Oh, yes, Tim Key came along. That's right. Yes. Well, in fact, a few friends of mine came along and that was something I hadn't really thought hard enough about. I just invited a load of people. Oh, you invited me, actually. Yeah. Yeah. And then I realized at a certain point that I'd actually run out of allocated guest tickets and i'd invited too many people and i had to email a couple of people and say um actually you know that thing i invited you to that you said you did want to come to oh dear me that didn't look good at all so my email to you saying i can't make it you must have really been pleased yeah i was celebrating every time i got one from someone saying oh i'm really sorry or if they pulled out i got a few people who pulled out you know uh, i invited ramesh ranganathan Mm. but he'll pull out he'll pull out man he is mr pull out though isn't he i i think i was an hour away from meeting him in la for a coffee yeah we were both there a few years ago and i was quite lonely 
And I was really pleased to see him and he pulled out uh, an hour before. (laughs) I mean, I am not in any way attempting to shame or impugn him. He is just one of the busiest people in the entertainment world at the moment. It is ridiculous. I don't know how he maintains any actual friendships or a marriage or three uh, children family or anything. Oh, I definitely look at him because a lot of people accuse me of being, you know, you get that the busiest man in comedy or whatever. Oh, yeah. I think I'm nowhere near because I'm pretty organised and I know what I can and can't do. His diary is ridiculous. There's a few people like that. I just don't understand how they fit it all in and are consistently good. Yes, do you feel as if you're properly across everything? So, I mean, the main thing is Taskmaster, that rolls on and shows no sign of stopping. Do you have it in your head that you would stop it at a certain point or take a break at least? Because that's the tough thing with uh, a real juggernaut like that. And I think we can call it a juggernaut at this point. I don't know what a juggernaut is. Do you know what a juggernaut is? I think I think it's a big truck. It's a big truck. Yes, yes. Oh. Okay, but you're talking metaphorically. I'm talking metaphorically. I don't believe that the show is <laughs> an actual big truck, but uh, it's a really successful one. People love it. It's always on. It has reinvented the way that TV is made at the moment. And uh, that must be a strange thing to witness, to see that you have done something so influential that TV channels are restructuring the way they produce comedy. And the main innovation being to have a cast for a game slash panel show that you then stick with for an entire season or series. Yes. So, yeah, are you maybe you're not in a position where you're able to speak freely about the future of the show or how you feel um, about it. Oh, but... I can talk more freely on this than my anal problems. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we never used the word anal before. <laughs> No, but I think you said bot-bot, so there was a hint there. <laughs> but we now know it's more inside than outside, although it became more outside than inside. Yeah. Um, well, look, we have got to film two more series for Channel 4. That's contractual. I would definitely like to carry on because, well, there's two reasons. I really enjoy it. There's plenty of people who I would still like to do it, you know. I'm looking at you at the moment. I, I hopefully, I always hope people don't feel like, well, I don't want to do it now. It's series 14. Why would? Why am I this late to be invited? But there's, so, as you know, there's a lot of factors involved yes. in casting things. But anyway, there's a lot of people I want to do it. I, I really do enjoy it. But also, I've managed to get out of a lot of the process. So I don't go to the edit, whereas I used to. And I used to have to stay with, with the director every time we filmed. I used to stay at his house because it was so all-consuming 
Whereas now I can get home in a good time. But basically, we're much better at making the program. So it's pretty much a pleasure. What it does is eat into horn section time. But it doesn't eat into family time too much. So I think I'll carry on. As long as it doesn't feel like we've run out of ideas. It's a pretty boring answer. But I, it's it's a juggernaut that's quite fun to be sat in still. Yeah. And in terms of it being weird, it is weird that it's... I don't think it's transformed anything. But I, you definitely see you get sent pitch ideas and they mention Taskmaster quite often saying we would like it to be a bit like Taskmaster. What I want is for people to use comedians better. Mm-hmm. I don't think Talking Heads is a good use of a comedian. I think some panel shows don't show off the best sides of a comedian. Whereas if you can, I think what we're quite good at doing is letting people be themselves and showing off their funniest sides. And that was probably because Tim Key did the first series and he's not a panel show person, but um, was very comfortable. Well, was comfortable-ish doing it. So he, he made people realise that you don't have to be Josh Widdicombe to do it, although he was brilliant at it, but you can be all sorts of comedians to do it. I, I always feel very tedious when I talk about it. No, I think you're right, though. I think that was one of the biggest and most heartening aspects of the whole thing and, and of the success of the show was that it did seem to be redressing the balance in favour of a more idiosyncratic... This is such a boring sentence. I'm going to abandon it. No, yeah, well, I felt that with my sentence, yeah. It was a good... It's just a better use of comedians. It's got more heart to it. Yeah, that's enough, isn't it? It's less of a kind of, you know, rabbit in the headlights. Go! Say something funny! Yeah. Now! Because that's the thing about panel shows that I hate so much that I've wanged on about on this podcast before is that sense of basically having to be a little bit rude. You know, I was brought up nice. You speak when you're spoken to. You wait for someone else to finish talking before you say something. But that's no good on a panel show. You've got to get in there and you've got to have sharp, funny elbows and you better be confident and you better be funny on cue. Otherwise, you're not going to make the edit. And that was, yeah, you know, that's been the case with so many things. I yes. Think. Yeah, we definitely stumbled upon a way of not doing that. But we sort of cheat because there's an element of that in the studio where people do start having to, well, not, not having to, but they do flex that muscle a little bit when they're talking about what they've done. Yeah. But actually people are respectful because they're in it for the whole series. So they're not desperate to get their words in. And also the editing, it's the same team that's done it from the beginning. And we, we I think, are kind and show people in the best light and make sure it's even-handed. And we also really like vulnerability. I like it when people aren't doing jokes and there's a bit of sadness or frustration. That's all part of it. I was in the studio last night. We finished something last night. And the whole prize section at the beginning was actually really tender and wasn't gags at all. Not many laughs. And I'm hoping that we can keep that all like that. I think it's fine. But that's partly because we're however many series in, so people trust us, hopefully, at this stage. Yes, presumably the transition from one channel to another was a painful process and a concession to making the most of the success of the show that must have been difficult it was i'm not ashamed of anything but it was you're right really painful which sounds so uh, ungrateful i suppose but it was splitting up with dave who were the only people who supported us at the beginning although channel 4 did pay for the development at the beginning and then turned us down and then they were the only people who went for it. And they were great from the off. And they really got behind it. And we really liked the people and made friends, you know. And we had to say, actually, we want to go to a, a bigger channel, which is fundamentally what the only reason why we left was so more people could see it. So it was, yeah, it was painful. And it felt like everyone was going to go that we're chasing the money. And I suppose there is an element of that, that you do get paid more. But mainly it's because we wanted more people to watch it. My mum didn't know how to find Dave. 
but she knows where Channel 4 is. And I, I think she's fairly typical. And it's actually turned into quite a family show. There's a bleeped version that's on all four, which Dave did as well. But I think more kids are likely to watch it on Channel 4. And I really like it when generations watch it together. So it was, it was a sort of no-brainer, but it wasn't a no-hearter. Yes. If that's the phrase. Yeah, that's good. Mm. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah, that's all it was. And they've been supported. We, we've spoken since and we've met up, me and Dave. But it's definitely not the same as it was. And it's something that's, well, hopefully we will do something together again in the future but i don't know sure it's like i imagine like splitting up with an actual romantic partner yeah you say you'll stay in touch and meet up for coffees but you don't because the new partner doesn't want you to either that's right but then maybe one day you'll go and you'll have a shag <laughs> and it'll, and your new partner will understand or will they not find out they won't find out because ah, the shag I, will never get broadcast. how does that work in the metaphor uh how does it work you'll do a pilot for ah. dave and it'll be sexy and fun, but it won't be quite the same, and no one will ever know about it. <laughs> okay. Until one day Channel 4 do find out about it, and then they freak out. Ah. And oh, no. Do, am I getting divorced from Channel 4? Throw you out of the house, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of the things that, of course, is impressive about the show is the constant invention. Have you now got a games team that you sit around with American style and think of these things with? No, we don't at all. So the system is still, I come up with all the tasks. However, the production team, lots of whom have been there from the beginning, do chip in with ideas. And they also, more importantly, fine-tune my ideas. Mm -hmm. So I can't say they're 100% mine, but they're all through my brain. And there's absolutely not a room full of writers. And I think we might be idiots for that. Um, In New Zealand, they're making it at the moment. And they have to come up with all their own tasks because they show our version as well. And they have a team of really good comedians coming out with the tasks and the tasks are really good so maybe that's what we should have done but i couldn't bear to say right I, my brain's done let's get new people in because i think it's not that impressive well it might seem impressive the amount of things that come out but it's just like you doing this mm-hmm. you know that's just my job is to come up with the tasks and i don't come up with jokes anymore because i can't so it's just that side of my brain and i really enjoy it and it's not a hardship to walk around thinking Okay, what if they walk into a room and, uh, you know, poke each other on the back with either a sausage or a finger? (laughs) Yes. Yes, please. Yep. Yes. You have a dog, right? Yeah, we've got Lockie. She's over there. I walked here this morning. I think I'm really close to my dog, like we probably all are. But I was walking with her this morning, just looking at her, thinking, I really, really, really like you. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I think she feels the same. I really do. I think she does. I'm sure she does. How old is Loki? She's two. Well, it's spelled L-O-K-Y, but it's pronounced Loki because the kids named her. And we don't know why. It's something to do with the Marvel character, but not. You know, it's pronounced wrong and spelt wrong. Okay. But she's a girl and they didn't want a girl sounding name. She came in the October before lockdown, but she sounds like it's a lock, you know, oh, I it's see. a hint, yeah. hint of lockdown in the name. And it's sort of just before everyone got dogs. But I'm, yeah, so grateful for her during lockdown. She was our little saviour. Although I did hear you on the horn section telling a story that I was, I must say, surprised made the edit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We gave a warning before it went out, I think, because Will didn't think it should go out. We've done the story why don't we yeah. try um that well one? we don't have to call it a <laughs> i don't think I sneak, can you bleep that word I just out, just, word just to keep it intriguing <laughs> do you want me to get rid of that 
No, just the word, just for fun. I don't mind. I think people know exactly what's happened by now. But I think it'll <laughs> yeah, be fun. Okay, I'll say that again. Um, well, we've done the story about your medical emergency in New York, and, mm. and I think we did a good job of talking around the worst of that. So let's see if you can recount the dog story in a similar way. Yeah, my dog story was, um, which she did a lot in her first six months, was she would do her business. She would do a poo, I guess that's how we describe it. Mm-hmm. Always before we could get out to pick it up, she would eat it fully. <laughs> and then she would come up and sit on our lap. And if you hadn't witnessed it, she would always come and sit in your lap and then burp in your face. And I grew to quite like the smell. That was the, that was the problem with it. But on Christmas Day, I don't think I said this, on Christmas Day last year, we had our first ever Christmas, just us as a family, with no visitors because of lockdown. Yeah. And we enjoyed that, just the day itself. We didn't think we would. You know, everyone was sad we didn't see our family. But the day itself, we loved. It was just the five of us and dog. But <laughs> she must have done what, what I've just described. But she then puked on a brand new sofa. Shit. <laughs> so Christmas morning, 10 o'clock, my wife was cleaning shit vomit. <laughs> off a brand new yellow sofa <laughs> and we were just we were literally just saying this is wonderful this is the best christmas we've ever had and then it was, <laughs> then it was shit vomit <laughs> terrible it was awful there's nothing worse really you, you never get used to the shit i think because <laughs> rosie's got this thing where she will sometimes she'll go out and she'll find a place which is off the beaten track literally metaphorically go over in a corner by a shed or whatever and have a dump great and then we'll have to scoop it up and pop it somewhere else so but then sometimes it's as if she is deliberately doing a poo where someone is likely to step in it and uh last night i was walking over to my nutty room from the house and it was dark and sure enough i thought ooh. I've trodden in something, but I didn't even think like it didn't even cross my mind that it was one of Rosie's Todd's until I got to my shed and then looked at my shoe. And I was wearing um, trainers that have very deep treads, you know, not only are they deep treads, but there's like a hole inside the tread as well. So there's just so many opportunities for stuff to get inside there and be incredibly difficult to remove. Well, I'd, I'd really like to hear exactly your removal process because for me, it's hot tap and we've got a utility room, I suppose uh-huh. you call it, but it's very small and it's where we like clean things. Yeah. So suddenly we're introducing shit to that room, but I will also smell it again and again and again. In the heat of the vapour. Yeah, but I will put the shoe to my nose right up. Oh, you keep I will keep smelling it going, <laughs> yes. no, I can still smell it. Yes. But instead of scrubbing it for ages, I'll scrub it for a bit and then smell it and then a little bit more. And I think you never lose that smell because then it's sort of the smell is in your nose. So you're actually smelling what's in your nose rather than what's on the shoe. So what do you do? You scrub or do you? Yeah, similar sort of thing. Well, I squirt a load of washing up liquid on it, first of all. Right. As if that's going to neutralize it somehow. I think that makes it worse. And And then I blast it under the hot tap. But in the past, I have blasted it too strongly and yeah. bits have ricocheted back onto my face which is then a you know which is appalling and you're sad and angry <laughs> and yeah. you're sort of gagging and the whole process takes a long time yeah, yeah. out of your day that you know you can't afford that time no and it's, there's no good there there's not there's no fun no no but when i remember when i was a teenager thinking 
quite often I think, this is a sort of rude thing to say, but I think somewhere in the world at the moment, there's definitely two people having sex. I remember thinking that when I was a teenager. I that thought, yeah. Thinking that was quite exciting. <laughs> but now I'm thinking, right now, there's definitely at least five people cleaning sh- shit off their shoes. I mean, there's probably <laughs> probably a thousand people doing it right this minute. And I'm more interested in that nowadays. Smelling the shoe constantly. Yeah. We had an incident when the kids were little when one of them had a nosebleed in the bath. We had a three under four. So one was in the bath just bleeding away and my wife was dealing with him and then the two-year-old wandered in and uh, grabbed my wife's hand and put a shit in it, which <laughs> which he'd done in the bedroom and picked it up and just put it in her hand and she was dealing with blood and looked down and suddenly had a shit in her hand. <laughs> yeah. This is an advert for Squarespace. Every time I visit your website, I see success. Yes, success. The way that you look at the world makes the world want to say yes. It looks very professional. I love browsing your videos and pics, and I don't want to stop. And I'd like to access your members area. And spend in your shop. These are the kinds of comments people will say about your website if you build it with Squarespace. Just visit squarespace.com slash Buxton for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, because you will want to launch, use the offer code BUXTON to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So put the smile of success on your face with Squarespace. Yes. Eight. Continue. Mm. Hello, beautiful wolf. You want to say hello to the podcats? Oops, dropped my glasses. I love you. Oh, you've got a small head. Hmm. All right, see you later. If you've just rejoined us after skipping Alex's dog plop story, welcome back. I think you missed a really good ploppy section, but I understand it's not for everybody, that kind of thing. I'm very grateful indeed to Alex for his time. And if you'd like to explore the world of the horn section a bit further, there's a few links in the description of this podcast. And the companion episode to this conversation with Tim Key will be with you quite soon. Can't say exactly when. Because I get, I get ambitious. I think, yeah, I'll drop them both on the same day. Do some same day dropping. But then I realise, like, oh, it takes me longer than that to do these, doesn't it? And then um, there's a bit of a delay. Anyway, I hope it'll be out in the next few days. And then uh, as a kind of... Well, it's not a bonus because it'll be a regular... This is boring, isn't it? Um, it's coming soon. I wanted to tell you about a festival that I'll be appearing at 
later this year. I will be appearing at the Blue Dot Festival in Jodrell Bank, the observatory, about 22 miles south of Manchester. On Saturday, the 23rd of July, the festival starts, I think, on the Thursday and runs through till Sunday, 24th of July. I'm not sure exactly what our slot is going to be. I'm going to be doing a best of bug show. So, you know, big screen. I'll be showing some great music videos made by other people and uh, reading out some YouTube comments, including a few of my own bits of nonsense, singing a couple of songs, perhaps, that sort of thing. I'm looking forward to Blue Dot. I've never been before, but it seems like a cool place, the observatory, that is, and a great lineup. Bjork is headlining on the Sunday, so that's very exciting indeed. You've got Groove Armada. Wouldn't be a festival without Groove Armada. Mogwai, Metronomy. Metronomy are playing also on the Saturday. That was my one stipulation. was like, please don't mind what kind of slot we get for Best of Bug, but can it not clash with Metronomy? I'm very keen to see them. Who else? Over the weekend, you've got Spiritualized, Koji Radical, Kelly Lee Owens, Stuart Lee is going to be there also on the Saturday, I think. He's going to be presenting a screening of the... A documentary about the legendary cult band The Nightingales, which I spoke to him about when he appeared on this podcast last year. Great doc, well worth seeing if you haven't seen it already. So anyway, I put a link to the Blue Dot site in the description of this podcast. And I hope you can make it along. But right now I'm going to wrap things up. Rosie! Come on, let's head back. I'm going to leave you with a tribute to the Horn Section podcast, which is me saying my thank yous this week in the style of Alex Horn uh, giving shout-outs to the Horn Section podcast Patreon supporters, which he does at the end of the episodes. And he uh, says the names of the people who've been supporting them on Patreon over an incredible piece of music. It's a little synthesizer tune by Ed Sheldrake of the Horn Section. So yes, here are my thank yous over the Horn Section podcast $5 holler theme by Ed Sheldrake. Thanks to Seamus Murphy Mitchell for his invaluable production support and also thanks to Matt Matt Lamont that is cause he's an edit whiz also thank you very much to Helen Green she's the podcast artwork queen yes she is oh she rules the artwork biz She's the queen of artwork Oh, Laura, Laura, lovely artwork It's quite flattering as well in myself If you were an illustration What kind of illustration would you want? I'd be a great Helen Green illustration, Chuck 
Bye.